Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, episode 113, Friday, Friday the 13th, Mark, December the 13th. And welcome to our listeners to the new, quicker, faster, more zippy podcast as I slow down with my voice here, Mark. So we have decided to do some more bite-sized podcast, Mark, and um, hopefully that will work and we won't end up being an hour with the podcast because we want people to be able to listen to the podcast and finish the podcast on their drive to or from work or their house calls or their farm calls, which is what we've had a few requests for. So we're going to chop down the size of the podcast and perhaps even introduce a few additional podcasts, aren't we, Mark? So that's the theory. But in practice, who knows whether or not that will work, Mark? <laughs> Do you think it will? Of course it will, Brendan. Of course it will. We'll be we will see. Well, the place to go, vetgurus.com. See, here we go. It's very snappy. You see, Mark, look at me go. It's vetgurus.com. And I'm a little bit on edge, Mark, um, because um, with the tragedy of the the White Island eruption in New Zealand, Mark, and um Gee, it is a tragedy, isn't it, with that um, island eruption and that tourist? And the the reason why I, I particularly feel for those people there, Mark, we ha- as you know, I'm heading over to New Zealand in March next year to speak at an exotics conference over there, and uh, there's still room for people to go to this conference, and it is in the North Island or on the North Island on the side, the East Coast there, Mark, um, not far, well, a reasonable distance, but not far from the White Island. And funnily enough, about two days before the eruption, Mark, um, Annette, my beautiful wife, Annie and Jane are going with me and we are going to travel around for about a week before the conference. And I ticked this We'll put this on the list of things to do, Mark. We were going to head out there and do the little day trip to that volcanic island and um, next day after I mentioned it to Annie, the eruption occurred. So I don't think we'll be heading over there. So it's a little bit scary. It could have been us on that island, Mark. Well, I've got... Yes, well, I'm just looking at a little bit of video as I'm talking to you, Mark, of um, of, of what happened there. And gee, it's um, I think they're still predicting at this time that potentially there's a sixty percent chance that it may erupt again, and they're concerned that the um, the bodies, which they expect that there'll still be um, only bodies left there of the other ten or so people missing, Mark, that they may ne- never be able to recover them if it erupts again because they'll be covered in covered in ash etc so yeah bit of a sad situation and um it's yeah pretty horrible but scary when you think gee that's a place that i may consider going or or somebody you know has gone there and obviously for the people who have died there and their families it's a horrible situation so yeah there's not much else i can say about that but sorry to start on a downer mark with the podcast but um that was my sort of 
weekly thought, um, apart from a very busy day. And I know you've had a bit of an emergency at, at the clinic, jumping back onto veterinary matters. I'm not trying to trivialise um, what was happening over there in New Zealand. Um, you had a had a bit of a birdie you had to sort of well, patch up overnight. A, so what a was lovely the story with that? A um, male bird who... Um, uh, lived in a household of mixed birds and, and obviously one of the other birds took offence and Eclectus latched onto the leg and uh, fractured the um, tarsometatarsus. And so um, we did just pain relief and, and uh, uh, stabilisation overnight, um, tried to control the haemorrhage and give the bird a chance to stabilise before we take some radiographs and contemplate a... Uh, a um, an ultimate fixation but my worry with this bird Brendan is that um, it may the the d- amount of damage that the and you could imagine uh, eclectus sized bird munching on the the uh, the thin bone leg the leg bones of a cockatiel um, it may end Surprise! There's any leg left, and I saw I saw the picture that you sent to me by messenger, and gee, it was a it was a bit of a mess there. So, so yeah, p- pain relief, Mark. Do, so, what what drug do you use then? And and you mentioned patch it up. Do you want to quickly in our zippy little podcast talk um, that we're going to do today? Um, talk about um, well, and what, what method know, do you do to give that the, first aid? One of the aid? most important things in controlling pain with fractures is stabilising the fracture as quickly as possible. And uh, so we do this uh, oyster shell technique where we grab a few pieces of coflex, we um, have the bird anaesthetised and then each side of the fracture has a, a piece of coflex applied to it. And we use um, uh, hemostats to press the coflex together and lock the fracture in position when we do these emergency ones we um we tend not to for an ultimate fixation if we were putting a cast like structure on we'd um infiltrate uh super glue or um, tissue cement into the coflex but i'll tell you what brendan i'm really keen after the upav conference to give the thermoplastics a crack uh for this purpose and um and i know that uh uh, Dr. Lilly, who was our representative at UPAV, has ordered those things. Um, but at the moment, I'm sticking with the old and, you know, the technique I know. And uh, and the pain relief we use with birds, of course, is butorphanol. Um, so she's good and stable at the moment, and we'd be keen to see how um, things progress overnight. There was a lot of bleeding, um, and I don't know the the uh, if the leg is uh, not salvageable. I don't know that um, that this particular bird will be one that um, that uh, that we'll be able to go ahead with. But um, anyway, that's for tomorrow, Brendan. Yes, tomorrow's another day, and good luck for little Birdie. And yeah, you'll have to fill us in next week what happened with that particular case. So, well, you have an interest in. It's not a particularly. Um, it's a bit of a complex subject, isn't it? Um, for your first and only I can news that, story, I can, and I can hear that tone a... in your voice. You're contemplating the complexity <laughs> and how long it's going to take. So let me tell you, this is a story about the no kill movement, and it's a. There's an argument made that the no kill movement, particularly in the US, may actually be having a paradoxical effect that increases. Uh, animal suffering and lowers animal welfare. Now, it's one of those things where there's an obvious good intention. The no-kill movement uh, quite 
you know, it's a, a noble idea that no healthy animal should be euthanized, euthanized simply due to the lack of shelter space or being not having a home. Um, and there's been a massive amount of money and effort uh, working towards uh, uh, animals in shelters being adopted rather than having them, uh, you know, euthanized. And it's it's actually like done a huge amount of well, let's it has a huge positive benefit in that euthanasia rates have plummeted, and and that's not a huge surprise when people put a huge amount of effort in to try to make them drop. Um, they're they're uh, they are likely to, and and the, the total number there's estimates that suggest that um, in the seventies. Um, that uh, something like 13.5 million um, uh, animals were, uh, was something like an annual um, number of animals across the US that were euthanized. Um, and more recently, those numbers have been estimated to be between somewhere between one and two and a half million. So it is a huge number of animals that are. Um, that are no longer killed and actually find homes. And it's, you know, the no-kill um, uh, policy has led to a situation where there's a consciousness in the public that there are animals there that need homes that could be great pets um, and maybe people don't all have to look for those show dogs. Um, and so there's a, it's a, a good thing. Don't Please don't think I'm deriding the whole policy. No, and I think... One of the comments they make in the article is that perhaps we should be dropping the term no kill and having a bit of flexibility. And one of the concerns of the article was, and they used a couple of case reports, didn't they, of these supposed, I think they called them almost like hoarding of the animals, some of these shelters that start off with several animals or a few dozen animals and end up with hundreds if not thousands of animals and and it's detrimental to the animals there. So they're not having in any way or form some of those um, um, any particular kind of good life or, or quality of life with them so it ends up being just an animal hoarding shelter and um, I think it's been flexible isn't it Mark in that yeah I, over the years um, adopting them out and, and getting them out to other shelters that might be able to get them to other rescue groups and then back out into the community and they live a, a, a good life um, but some of them you do have to end up euthanise them um, or euthanise them and, and um, that's that's what needs to be, for a better word, Mark, encouraged, doesn't it? Um, we need to we need to be practical about the approach to these and unfortunately so a, a fair number and I think you've dealt with some of these shelters as well, Mark. Um, some of these animals that end up in those shelters, especially longer term, have lots of psychological problems, those animals, and they are not animals that are fit to be rehomed, even with it, what you retraining. say is precisely my thoughts. I had we had a client who, through one of our local um, rehoming shelters, who have this no kill policy. Um, a wonderful uh, client in her senior years, on her own, her part, husband's passed away, um, and she took on a, a uh, an aged dog who, within days. Um, developed um, significant problems that were, you know, that that eventually ended up over a few days ended up uh, revealing a, a tumor in the abdomen, and um, and she'd only cared for the thing for ten days, and it had to be euthanized, and um, and I don't know that it, I think a very one of the the veterinarians that I know both of us look up to once said to me um, that. Uh, 
that humane euthanasia is not an unfair welfare outcome, and oftentimes it's a much better welfare outcome than than uh, than staying alive in some instances. And I think you're right. We have to be flexible and look at each case individually, and not look at in the the context of overall statistics or trying to achieve targets of a number of animals um, that uh, that are kept alive. It's just got to be like, look at each case. Can we find a home for this dog? Can we find a home for this cat? Maybe, um, as you said, their, their behaviour, their demeanour will not let them be a um, pet animal. And so um, it's not fair to keep them in those places for long periods of time. Yep. And we will link to that article, vetgurus.com. Go over there now and visit it while you're stopped at the lights. Or perhaps not. It shouldn't be on your mobile phone. Okay, so my news story is, Mark, this is one you should really be taking, but I've decided to take a bird one. How much weight can a hawk carry? And it's an article from Mother Nature Network talking about mainly raptors and and the the myths of um, or the urban legends about um, birds stealing or, 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 or flying off with all sorts of animals that weigh weigh excess of, of what that particular bird weighs, Mark, and um, 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 you probably had a bit of a laugh at this if you haven't already looked at it there, um, um, and some comments about, um, you know, children being taken and a full and, and Great Danes being <laughs> lifted up by hawks, um, and they do have a little bit of um, um, fact or science in there, Mark, um, t- um, suggesting that um, a, a good a good ballpark is that hawks and owls, for instance, can't fly away with prey that weighs more than the actual bird there. Um, and given that the light weight, the the weight of even big raptors, um, which average only up to a couple of kilos at max, Mark, um, they're, they're unlikely to 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 carry away your your little human child there, Mark. Um, what were your thoughts on on this particular article? I thought it was quite <laughs> well. Um, well, it, not, it did spark yeah, my your thoughts because I was completely sucked in by a uh, hoax video that went viral a few years ago, where an eagle was shown to lift off a small child that was in a puffer jacket, um, and I tell you why I was sucked in and believe that hoax, Brendan, because we regularly the, the wedge-tailed eagles around here uh, they weigh about between three and a half and four kilos, and there is a subset of dogs that I get to see, particularly some chihuahuas, who um, who would be can, 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 can completely conceivable that those birds would take them and twice. Good eating. I can report um, that. Uh, We've had clients who have literally seen the birds take off with their chihuahua. And in the usual way of chihuahuas, they don't go quietly, Brendan. Um, and 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 the eagle is probably a little bit surprised because most <laughs> rabbits, most sick rabbits that the wedgies get, they're going to be pretty limp on the flight back to the uh, eating perch. But these chihuahuas... They fairly regularly let the uh, eagle know that this isn't going to be an easy job. And um, both of them were dropped from a reasonable height. Um, and uh, and both of them passed away, not because of the fall, which was, uh, the, you know, um, there was one video that one of our clients had, um, and it looked like about 16 feet we estimated the dog fell from. But, um, but it was the talons piercing the abdominal wall and, raking through the spleen and uh, the dogs would bleed to death. Um, so 
So that I am, I am fascinated by um, uh, the facts that this article presents, but I, I, I must admit, um, while I'm normally very critical of online clickbait, um, I've been drawn into these hoax videos because it does happen every once in a while. You're a sucker, Mark. Um, that's a good example of natural selection, there, isn't it? Um, if if the odd chihuahua gets um, put up into the air and um, never seen again, and um, feeds a wedge-tailed eagle, then perhaps that is not a bad thing, Mark. And uh, I know most veterinarians don't have a particularly fond affliction for um, yep, yep, chihuahuas. Um, we don't. See, do you see many chihuahuas few, in few, your practice? Few, few. Well, it sounds like yeah, a couple less than you used to, but um, yes. <laughs> no, we don't see many at all. Uh, well, actually, no. I, I have a very good client who has two chihuahuas, and they're little, little. Um, yeah, I won't say what they are. And they come in for a nail clip where we. Um, uh, the method that works is I just drape them in a towel and wrap them up in a <laughs> chihuahua burrito, and um, they do calm down a little bit. Although you can hear this wild, you know. Um, roaring in the background and snapping, um, gnashing, and we managed gnashing of the teeth, and we can manage to clip their nails. So, yeah, they're the two chihuahuas that I um, that, um, I currently deal with, Mark. So, yes, um, they're probably not my most favourite dog species. Well, speaking of dogs, our main topic is cats, isn't it, Mark? <laughs> um, you elected to um, well talk a little bit about a, a, a particular condition because you've seen a couple of or maybe an increasing number, you think, that there's an explosion of eosinophilic granuloma complex cats in your practice? Well, I think in the way of these things, it's typical that um, that they come in rushes and you often, you know, see a case and then do a bit of research, become a bit more aware of it, um, and um, then you see more. We've had a couple of long-term – we've got a wonderful diabetic uh, patient, that a cat that we've managed for n- nearly six years now um, – and um, in the way of nothing is nothing is kind, Brendan. Um, in the way, instead of just being like a well managed diabetic, this lovely cat has developed a whole series of other problems. And not least amongst them is the the um, the eosinophilic granuloma that gives it all the trouble on its mouth. And of course, eosinophils are the allergic um you know the hypersensitivity cell in cats and so um the one of the most common reasons that uh this specific cutaneous reaction occurs in cats is a um is a hypersensitivity to flea bites um and so we do find that um that they often respond initially to corticosteroids but of course um when you've got one on a diabetic um you really don't uh, want to be um, dumping the the uh, corticosteroids into a patient like that. I think we do see, yeah, I don't know what it's like down where you are, um, but I certainly see a number of cats that I reckon are, f- um, are sensitive to mosquitoes. You know, here in Newcastle where we have the wonderful Hexham Swamp and we have some of the biggest mosquitoes in the world, um, there, there is often a little flood of mosquitoes, and uh, and I think they are another agent that triggers this process. So, for those who aren't familiar with this particular condition, say new veterinarians or veterinary technicians, nurses, Mark, what does it look like a cat with this condition? Well, 
it's highly variable, but the typical sort of presentations are, um, so they used to be called rodent ulcers. So they'd be thickened um, areas of the, the lips or just inside the mouth. Um, they'd often uh, have this raised um, plaque-like surface that um, was all red and uh, ulcerated. And um, they frequently, where they occur elsewhere, not necessarily on the lips, they may be, they're often linear and so they, you know, often look like a healing um, laceration, And uh, except they don't heal. Um, and lots of the times the owners are saying to us, oh, um, Fluffy's, you know, very itchy and gotten to the point where she's scratched this lovely long laceration in her. Um, and, uh, and while I think... The trauma that the cats do to themselves certainly exacerbates these lesions. Um, I think that even if the cats couldn't scratch them, they'd still end up with these uh, granulomas or um, indolent ulcers or linear plaques um, that are often the presentation that we see. They look pretty nasty, don't they? And they can end up being a fair... A fair area of the mouth, can't they, Mark, with some of them, with the more severe cases there and um, that, that sort of classic sort of, what colour would you describe it? A, a tanny, yellowy sort of colour, isn't it, for some of the more chronic They often, when they there. first occur, they often just look like, um, you know, granulation tissue. They sort of have that nice pink colour, um, a bit erythematous and just roughly, you know, a bit rough on the surface. But as they uh, become more chronic, they definitely develop a, a you know, a, a yellowish plaque-like appearance over the surface um, and, uh, and yeah, they're not a pleasant thing to look at. And, and they're obviously uncomfortable for the cats too. Oftentimes the reason, you know, there's been many times we've found these um, for cats that have been brought in for not eating um, and the physical exam reveals that they've got a hugely painful lesion on their lip or uh, possibly on the roof of their mouth or on their tongue. Um, and um, and they can be an agent to uh, limit intake in these cats. Absolutely. So, what do you do? What's your standard sort of treatment for these? Well, and how the, well does the sort it work? of things that uh, the, there's stages, Brendan. There's stages. The first thing we do is we really, really work hard to um, control fleas because in our situation, I think the vast majority, not all of them, but the vast majority of flea hypersensitivity reactions. And so if we can um, manage the fleas, then then the, the problems settle down. Um, and so we will often use, um, you know, multi-layered um, insecticide treatment. Um, so uh, we may use um, uh, one of the standard um, spot-ons, Brevecto or Nexgard, something like that. And... Um, and then we'll uh, use something like Capstar superimposed on top. And, um, and yeah, the, uh, maybe even um, uh, a washing the cat to remove the allergen from the coat. Um, uh, working to control the allergic reaction in the first instance um, is often uh, a, a very satisfying technique um, and often prevents not having you know to have to go to more dramatic things but I'd still say in my hands about um I don't know a, more than a third 40 or 50 percent of them even with aggressive multi um uh multi uh, faceted flea control um food and dietary uh, 
um, tr elimination trials and uh, protection against um, flying, biting insects like midges and mosquitoes, we still have um, those cases which just do not get better. Um, and so while it's always good to follow um, you know, the further diagnostic workup, allergy testing and, and, uh, um, and um, allergen-specific immunotherapy, um, we're often with those cases depending on the treatments which uh, decrease the immune reaction and, and glucocorticoids would be definitely our next step. Yes, I was going to say, what about anti-inflammatories? No, so which well, ones do you reach for? Prednisolone. Prednisolone. We t I, when I first graduated, we would, um, you know, Depamedrol, methylprednisolone, um, would sort of be the, uh, the routine uh, first-line treatment. But obviously those things um, last for a month and, you know, if you inadvertently put that stuff into a cat that has a comorbidity, um, then you could well be dealing with a very seriously ill animal very quickly. So at least with the relatively faster acting um, corticosteroids like prednisolone, you are, you're in a much better position to stop that if things go pear-shaped. Um, I think, I, sorry, Mark, I think, I think reaching back into my memory, I think, yeah, we used to, it used to be splashed around for all sorts of cat conditions was the ovarid. Um, tablets you remember those which is what megastrol acetate is <laughs> yes, that correct can you remember and that? i do remember them being thrown around um uh quite liberally but um i think they're that they're, they're uh um, what's this is uh, diabetes is the side effect we get from those isn't it? well they're let's just call them contraindicated <laughs> i don't think they're used anymore um but in the day that was i, I, I don't I don't even think they're available. No, I don't think so. No, I doubt it. But yeah, yeah. the good old days, Mark, when we used to use all the products that um, seemed to cure the animal, but um, probably cured them in the short to medium to long term. <laughs> <laughs> but the condition seemed to respond well at the time, didn't it? Um, yes, those were the good old days, supposedly. So what about, and you mentioned that there was other other and I'm leading you on to the surgical route. So are, are some of these that you do have to end up going in there and do some sort of surgery on those um, those chronic ones or those deeper ones? And, and do you find that that helps at all? And what, 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 what's the surgery that you would consider doing? Well, I'm going to have to bounce that back at you because uh, if I can't get glucocorticoids to work, I'll often employ cyclosporin. I do use antibiotics, but I haven't had that much success with surgery. Um, there have been a couple that I have like literally um, taken the the um, the tissue away um, and you know just done a literal resection of the inflamed tissue. Um, but I think that. Um, that wound um, often ends up being a non-healing wound at that site, in my, the, at least in the cases I've dealt with. So do you do surgery on these? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, similar to you, Mark, in that um, you might have an, an ongoing one that, that we're struggling to control with whatever combination of medications that we're using. And I might consider, look, let's just give it a go with, with trying to cut out that, that lesion and um, see if it all comes together. And um, apart from giving the, the cat a bit of a snarl on that um, lip for a, a few weeks until it stretches there, um, yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance that it's just going to recur or it will or it will break down or not heal very well. But, um, yeah, I don't think there's any... There's any any um, 
any simple solution to it surgically or magical surgical solution there have you have you tried injectable sort of products into intralesionally mark no i haven't um i've tried none of those uh types of treatments what a what a you know and uh the um the cat in question um that was struggling uh, with those, uh, the diabetic cat in question that was struggling with those lesions, um, has we've had uh, allergen-specific immunotherapy begun with that cat, and um, and I think I would leap in that direction a little bit more quickly with those recalcitrant cases, those indolent cases. I'd be very keen these days, given the success we've had with that case, to to move down that path and identify, do the the. Uh, um, you know, the skin testing, get the local der- specialist dermatologist to do the skin testing and um, and try and treat the cat uh, according to the spectrum of allergens that it's reacting to. How, how difficult or not is it to get the client to agree to that sort of process, Mark, um, referring to the dermatologist and the, the costs of doing that or, or have they by that time, you know, um, been a bit frustrated with, with the lack of response to to the treatment so they're quite keen to go ahead um, well it's hard or, it, no no it's uh, you've you've anticipated the difficulty um uh, and i'm sure not just anticipated it but experienced it it's um it is often very difficult to get clients to um jump on to the the um the specialist dermatologist uh pathway and and i know that um that uh, those specialists you know, I, I usually say to the client something along the lines of we're, we're going to spend, you know, um, maybe a thousand, two thousand dollars getting the testing done. Then we're going to spend um, uh, something like, I don't know, 70, between 35 and 70 dollars an injection uh, for once a week for 15 weeks and uh, then once a uh, every three weeks for three to five years, and um, and you know that's going to mount up to three to five thousand dollars over the time. And the the thing about um, allergen specific immunotherapy is that it's the best treatment you can do, but it's still only yes. effective against sixty to seventy percent of cases. There's still going to be thirty percent of cases that ha- you do all the right things and they don't respond. So it is difficult to move people in that direction but we're lucky that we've got at least a, a significant proportion of our clients are, are very motivated and um and they work their way through those other steps and if they're not working we have got a few of them to that point so um I, i'm i'm more and i think also we play a role brenda our enthusiasm or lack thereof does influence the way the clients uh, leap in one direction or another with treatment so I've got to try and put my happy pants on and tell them how good it is. I, I don't like that um, visualization, Mark. <laughs> I'm new with your happy pants on. I, I think we'll leave that. Um, we'll leave that. Um, we might have to cut that out of the podcast, <laughs> or perhaps not. Um, so, what percentage of these, if I can call them standard eosinophilic? ulcers in cats would respond to the standard treatment mark of, of not going down the immunotherapy there, but um, just the flea control and um, the cortico. 
plus or minus uh, cyclosporin. Plus or minus corticosteroids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or cyclosporin, yeah, sorry. And, and antibiotics. Antibiotics are always useful as well because they are other, they definitely are some of them that are complicated by secondary infection and, and probably that secondary infection can, uh, can further lead to hypersensitivity reactions. I'd say in my hands, um, I reckon uh, well over two-thirds respond to um, those those first few steps without going to ASIT treatment. Well, I can't say what our percentage are, Mark, because I'm trying to rack my brain as far as when the last one I saw is probably, you know, eight to 12 months ago. So when we certainly aren't seeing many of them at the moment, perhaps coming into the summer period here that um, we may see some more when, with the with the increase in the flea problems and that. But no, we... we um, we don't see that many, so it might be a Newcastle problem there, Mark. In that um, your your owners and your 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 patients are flea ridden at the moment. Is that, <laughs> yeah, know, look, I, look, it does. It does. Well, you know, I look at the uh, the weather, my weather app, to see what's going on in Melbourne, and it does seem that you guys either are veritably Arctic or um, or you know suffering a blast of the desert air. Um, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of gentle, high temperature, relatively comfortable, humid type weather that the, the fleas are going to love down your way. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 um, I wonder whether how much flea allergy do you see in, in dogs? Well, we see a reasonable amount of it, Mark, but uh, again, have I seen many flea allergies in any dogs or cats um recently not really no no but um, i expect i will be seeing a reasonable number of them over the over the next few months or so but, maybe, um, maybe not yeah, with the way um, the weather's changing down there yeah yeah um who knows mark well we'll, we'll report back on it when it occurs <laughs> <laughs> we will wait so well i think we should um close here mark so we've had a pretty quick um little podcast here this week and we want some feedback about um having a shorter episode and um trying to keep our episodes to 30 minutes or so to maybe 45 minutes maximum and um whether or not our listeners um, want us to keep it short and sharp and to the point or whether they want us to drone on and on and on for an hour like we usually do, um, perhaps something in between. Um, but with that, we're going to get out of here. And Mr Intro Man is here and we will talk to you next week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.